Hi, this is Marcus, and you're listening to Frequency Dip on Radio D-Side. Next two hours, I'm going to be playing you some weird and wonderful tunes of shoegaze, dream pop, and the weird world of indie. Also followed with a bit of a mixture from some interviews from the paranormal world about UAPs, ghosts, and hauntings. Also featured on the show are Songs of Your Life, where you can email me in, tell me a bit about why you like that shoegaze or dream pop song, and who you are, and I'll give you a shout out on the show. So sit back, get a coffee, enjoy the mellow sounds on a Friday night, and you're tuned in again to Radio D Sides.
Hello and welcome to the Frequency Dip. You're listening to Marcus here on D-Side FM. So you've just heard the paradigm shift with a great song Arise from the Ashes. Before that was Elbow with Any Day Now. So coming up on the show today we have some great music from Robin Guthrie. Some other great shoegaze bands that my great mate Brett Miller has introduced me to over the last couple of days. And we've got a chat with the great Micah Hanks from America regarding all the UAP stuff that's coming out of America with the government there. So sit back, enjoy the show, and have a happy new year. And also, I'm going to be playing my five top album tracks from this year.
So next up is one of Robin Guthrie's new tracks from his Pearl Diving EP. You've just heard After Daylight with Falling Out of Time. track you're going to hear up is Miss America this is by James and this is taken from their new album called All the Colours of You this is my fifth album of this year and another four to go Tiaras and glamour Can't stop the boss from keeping his hands off 
It saw snakes, no ladder. Miss America says live the dream So long as you're born white Killed the natives and jailed the slaves Move more to the right May God bless you and your golden sun May God bless you and your love of guns May God bless you and your passion for freedom Soul to the man with the time May God bless you and your golden sons. May God bless you and your love of guns. May God bless you and your passion for freedom. Sold to the man with the tan. Looks so good in the photograph. Just smile Not so good when the lights go down Heels about to break She's not straight Her ships to Mars Fouled the Nessoa star again With billionaires and film stars So next up in number four of my albums of the year is pressure machine by the killers and this is a song called quiet town i don't think many people heard this album but it's a really really great album it's great to have the guitarist back in the band as well oh yeah oh no the train the train every two or three years the train kills somebody every two or three years yeah everybody knows about the train okay you hear it constantly I think the train is a way to find your way out of this life if you get hit by it. 
Texas to the pouring rain. They're planning on getting married after graduation. Had a little baby girl. Trouble came and shut it down. Things like that ain't supposed to happen in this quiet town. Families are tight. Now we're going to pop over with our great chat that we had with Micah Hanks from America. Just sit back, enjoy what he has to say. Welcome to Frequency Dip here 
And today we've got Micah Hanks over from the other side of the ocean. So, Micah, do you want to introduce yourself to our crew in the Frequency Dip? Well, certainly. You know, it's been many years since I've been to England, and I hope to get back soon. But for the time being, I guess this will have to be how we can communicate. Uh, I am located here on the east coast of the United States. I've been involved in the research regarding what were once known as UFOs, now UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, uh, for many years. And I also follow history, a lot of developments in various different areas. But in addition to being a researcher in this regard and producing a podcast called the Micah Hanks Program, I'm a co-founder and creator of thedebrief.org, which is a news and science website that covers this topic and many others. So that in a nutshell is who I am. (laughs) So I guess um, the major question I should ask is, quite ex- exciting times for you at the moment in America, I guess, because um, you've had the UAP and Tic Tac stuff come out, and then you've had all the reports come out from your government over there. What are you sort of hoping will come out next? Well, that's a good question. You know, it's anybody's guess. I will note, since, of course, you use the term UAP, and I kind of noted how that seems to have become a more popular term for usage here in the United States just in recent years, But of course, they were referred to as UAP before that. Uh, One notable example of a government report that did so, of course, involved Project Condine, which was the UK's study a few years ago about this. And around 2000, the report, which ran for a couple of years in the late 1990s, uh, was released. And essentially, I mean, it was several hundreds of pages, but distilled down to its very finest essence, the report concluded that UAPs, as it termed them, are real but that they thought that UAP were probably atmospheric phenomena, that there were natural explanations for most of what people were seeing. And of course, I've talked with Dr. David uh, Clark there in the UK about this. He, having combed the Ministry of Defense archives and looked at the reports and says there's definitely some interesting stuff in there. But more recently here in the United States, we've seen similar adoption of that term UAP. Now, the earliest instance of that I've found in historical documentation dates back to about 1949 in an FBI memorandum, and that actually was referenced in a book by Barry J. Greenwood and Lawrence Fawcett called Clear Intent. But the FBI's documentation, of course, can be read online at their website. And I'm trying to recover the actual document where that screen grab, which I recall seeing at some point of the years, but you know, things get lost in the mix. I'd love to try and pull that up because again, unidentified aerial phenomena was explicitly stated as one of the terms used for this phenomena. Now, that's the term that the military prefers to use here in the United States. And of course, the most recent development, coming back to the exciting developments you were talking about there, Marcus, we just recently had the DOD establish an Airborne Object Identification Management and Synchronization Group, which has been met with some controversy because, I mean, a lot of UAP research advocates and government transparency advocates are a little concerned about the establishment of this office before our Senate can actually pass its version of what's called the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2022, which included wording, both in the Senate and the House version I'll mention, regarding the establishment of an official office of UAP investigations in government. So really, the dispute is over whether the DOD should arbitrarily establish one in advance of the Senate having the opportunity to pass one into law. And I will note, of course, that the Senate's version, as uh, proposed by uh, Senator Gillibrand of New York, Kirsten Gillibrand, it's definitely much more elaborately worded, definitely leaves very little to the imagination in terms of what the office would do, how it would function, 
and significantly that there would be ongoing reporting to Congress and the American people. And I think that's what people really want on UFOs or UAP. That's what they wanted for a long time, in fact, is transparency. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, like I say, I've um, interviewed a fair few people over in America now, like, um, you know, Calvin Parker and Terry Lovelace. And I think they just want some sort of, they don't want closure, but they want to know what they went through, if you know what I mean, where it came from. And I think that's what interests them more than what they actually went through, you know, from hearing the stories. Yeah, I have to tell you, too, I know Terry Lovelace pretty well. He and I actually uh, were together at an event a few weeks back in Kentucky uh, that was put on by my dear friend Tiffany Mack. And, uh, you know, I've hung out with Terry. In fact, we rode around in a car together for days, uh, and he seems about as down to earth and as legitimate as anyone I've met who has claimed to have had these kind of experiences. But just like you said, Marcus, what Terry expressed to me personally was, you know, I, I would just like to have a certain degree of resolution uh, to what I experienced myself. And he, of course, will tell you that he has received countless emails from others who've had similar experiences over the years. Because yeah. that, that was one of the questions I sort of brought to him, Michael, was um, like the people that you've had the experience, do they all go through some, uh, like a similar experience and do they all sort of know who's telling lies and who's not? And he sort of said, yeah, you sort of get a feel straight away of who the people are that, aren't really telling the truth because there's a certain thing they've all gone through with adduction that they all understand was what he sort of said. I found that really interesting. Oh yeah, no, I absolutely find it interesting as well. He he shared similar uh, experiences with me going to events and, you know, kind of getting a feel for the people at events who, you know, you can kind of tell are just there to kind of cash in on interest in the UAP topic versus People who like himself, and I think he would be okay with this this term, although I'm not really a fan of labels, but you could call Terry an experiencer. He had an experience, yeah. and he is still trying to understand exactly what that involved. But you know, this funny story he told me, he may have shared with you too, was this fella uh, who had claimed that he had had certain involvement in this particular area that Terry knew very well in the Northeast. And so he starts asking him about this particular restaurant and saying, oh, you lived in you know this town, so you'll know this restaurant and you'll know all about this, right? And the guy was going along with it. Oh, yeah, 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 I know that. Oh, great place. And Terry said, of course, the restaurant didn't exist. I was grilling him trying to find out if he was telling (laughs) the truth or not. And the guy had completely been making everything up. But you do see a lot of that in this community. And I can imagine that for people like Terry, who seem to have really legitimate experiences and who just want to kind of know what that involves and what our government might know about that, it must be frustrating for him. And he and I talked a good bit about that. So, Michael, were you quite surprised when your own Navy sort of came out with the reports? Because the feeling we get over here is it was the Navy that sort of broke all the stories originally sort of thing. Yeah, it was kind of surprising, Marcus. You know, I think the most surprising thing is people would expect that the U.S. Air Force or any country's Air Force would be the body of the military, which would be reporting encounters with unidentified flying objects. Now, it's not entirely surprising, I'll say, that so much of the information comes from the Navy, and that's for a few reasons. One, let's not forget that although the Navy is, you know, I guess really our largest uh, branch of the U.S. military, also our, really our oldest, I mean, before we had aircraft, we had a Navy, and that was uh, put to the test during the uh, Jefferson administration. I mean, so going back, you know, many, many centuries, we have you know, quite a history built upon the efforts of our Navy. But, 
you know, the idea that our modern Navy is exclusive to maritime operations, that's not entirely accurate. I mean, yes, that is what it overseas and where it operates, but the Navy's got fighter pilots, the Navy's got jets, they've got aircraft. So their pilots, of course, in service to naval operations, were some of the ones who were using very unique technologies, which include the Raytheon Company's at-flare targeting pod, which is, as everyone now knows, having seen these Navy videos, I mean, this is a, it's more than just video. It is video that collects a variety of instrumental data and outputs that, uh, and also, more importantly, also collects things like heat, you know, infrared signatures that allow some, you know, aspects of the behavior and operation of these objects, or lack thereof, to be discerned. And that was what was unique about the Navy footage, was that we don't see any kind of propulsion system. We don't see any exhaust. All we can see is objects that appear to be moving through the air and moving at an incredible speed, and that's what the instrumental data output from the ATFLIR targeting pod systems equipped aboard the FA uh, or FA-18 Super Hornets. That's what we, that's how we know what we know about these objects and why the military deems them anomalous. But one final point on the Navy's involvement, the other reason it's not necessarily surprising, considering that the Navy actually has, you know, aircraft that they operate, is the fact that the U.S. Air Force, having run the longest systematic study, um, really by anyone in the U.S. military and one of the longest in the world, involving unidentified flying objects, that being Project Blue Book from 19, I think around 52 until 1969. I mean, they worked for close to two decades trying to resolve the UFO issue and were unable to. And by the time it concluded, they really wanted an out. And when they were done, they were done. And I think the U.S. Air Force has traditionally since that time done everything it can to have as little involvement with UFO investigations as possible. So it's not surprising that the Navy ended up being charged with it this time. It was kind of like, okay, guys, who drew the shortest straw? (laughs) So do you think there's much difference between like what we class now as a UAP to a UFO? Because to me, it seems that the UAP is the sort of more conductive towards the tic-tac sort of little thing flying around where ufos are the big spaceships that people are seeing in the sky sort of thing well you know it's funny because i've seen a lot of people try to say that ufos when they first were reported were flying saucers they were discs and at some point we began to see these oblong shaped you know kind of cigar shape or again the modern term like you used tic-tac at some point these began to appear And, you know, people have used different names. People have kind of tried to rebrand UFOs. Mm. I think in terms of the reason for the shift in in the name, uh, really Unidentified Flying Object was the original acronym that was created by Edward Ruppelt, who was the first head of Project Blue Book, the aforementioned Air Force project. And Ruppelt, he was trying to get around the sort of stigma that stuck around with the use of the term flying saucer. Have some people reported seeing disks? Absolutely. But were all UFOs that were being seen, all the flying saucers, all the flying disks, were they all disk-shaped? Not at all. Uh, Case in point, I'll briefly quote from a a now-disclosed CIA document from April 1949. Uh, This involved four observers uh, who were operating at White Sands Proving Ground. As they noted, they were actually tracking a balloon at the time, and they were trying to spot this balloon with their naked eye while they also had telescopes and things trained on it. And when they looked up, they thought they had found the balloon in their line of sight. And according to the CIA document, uh, one of the reporters says, we thought we had the balloon when we saw a whitish spherical object right along the direction of the theolodite. Uh, he said the object was drifting east rapidly 
but we had thought to encounter similar winds of the, on the balloon. So when the difference in the angle between where we thought the balloon would be and this object became apparent, the observer says, I took over the theolodite and found the true balloon still there, whereupon I abandoned it and picked up the object after it came out of the sun. Here's how they describe the object. They say it was an ellipsoid, about two and a half to one slenderness ratio, and white in color except for a light yellow area on one side as though it were in shadow. In other words, we have a white oblong shaped object moving very quickly over White Sands Proving Ground. And that date, by the way, uh, 19, uh, April 24th, 1949. So I would argue this is one of the earliest accounts on record that seems to describe a tic-tac-like shaped object. And in fact, to that point, in recent weeks, Lou Elizondo, who had actually led the ATIP effort at the Pentagon many years ago, Elizondo has also said, you know, there are uh, tic-tac sightings that date back to the 1950s. Well, I would respectfully say, let's push that back to the late 40s, because the earliest one I found in the CIA's own files was from 1949. Yeah, because I, I, mean, I do find that quite interesting, because my very first interview was with um, Phil Mantella, who does a lot of the production of books for UFO characters in, in the world. And he was saying, you know, let's remember, Marcus, that Belgium had the same problem in the early 90s, so it's always been around, you know, it's not just a new thing, these tic-tacs. He sort of said, go away and do your research, and you'll find Belgium reporting them for a good solid year with their aerospace. Right, yeah, again, you know, and, and uh, that's an interesting point that you raised there as well, but again, I, I coming back fundamentally to the main issue there having to do with you know, UAP versus UFO, I, I do want to just make clear that in my opinion, it's all essentially the same thing. My feeling is that there has been a phenomenon. It's probably been here. In fact, there's a lot of good data that suggests it's been here for longer than uh, 1947, 1949, anywhere in the 1940s. I think it goes back before the Second World War and the Foo Fighters. No matter what you want to call it, what we all need to reconcile with is the fact that whatever these aerial objects are, they have been present for a while, and they remain unexplained, some of them. Yeah. So I guess, well, what do you personally think they are, and what would you like them to be? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I try to leave my own desires out of it, Marcus. Um, yeah. I think that this is uh, complex because there are a wide variety of different things that UAP, to use that term, yeah. may represent. Uh, we have, for instance, there are there are cases. I think that uh, this one may be from the around 1966 that area. Uh, there had been a gentleman who was traveling along the Oklahoma and I think Utah border, and this was near a U.S. Air Force base. He was coming along one evening as he kind of comes up over this hill. He sees this object, this long object, and it's actually blocking the road ahead of him at a 45 degree angle, and um, this report, by the way, has appeared in a number of different locations, but one book that, of course, recounted it had been John Keel's book, Operation Trojan Horse, which is just kind of a classic in Fortean literature. And I'll note, by the way, John Keel had his own unique ideas about what UFOs were and were not. He didn't think that they were necessarily all physical. He did certainly didn't think that they were extraterrestrial. But in the report, interestingly, the one that he features from 1966, where there's this object literally blocking the road and it's actually on the ground there are four large lights on the side of it as the observer drives up he can see a man wearing like a like a cap you know with a with a bill kind of yeah. turned up military looking kind of uniform and uh, this guy sees him looks at him and everything crawls up a ladder goes inside this 
doorway that leads into this craft and it lifts off the ground straight up and then it travels away. Well, the object was rather interesting in description. I would hesitate to say that it resembled a Tic Tac per se, but in terms of the occupant, he said, I got a pretty good look. The guy apart from, I mean, just, you know, being apparently entering and taking off into this strange looking aircraft, he looked like you or I. He looked like he was okay. maybe in his mid thirties. And he said, I, I got a good enough look at him that if I encountered the guy in a bar, I'd recognize him. So now back to your question about what do I think these things are and what do I want them to be? Cases like that one strongly suggest to me some kind of experimental aircraft piloted by humans. And I think that we have to be open to the possibility that there are chapters in the history of aviation, military and otherwise, that have not been publicly disclosed. But then again, I think that there are instances where there are objects that seem to so completely outperform any kind of known aerial technologies that we have to be open to the possibility of more exotic sources too. Yeah. But in terms of what I would like these things to be, you know, I try to leave my own desires out of the the equation, but I would have to say, I think some are ours and some are yeah. very possibly theirs. Yeah. Cause I mean, my wife, she, she, she has this theory that, you know, we, you know, the baby sauces of the world and, you know, the Elon Musk, they can go to, you know, Mars and the moon. So, why can't they try out their own little toys, you know, here and sit in it and zap around and get mankind thinking, well, what are these? But they just can't catch them to see who they are sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. But um, what sort of got you, you personally, Micah, into the whole UFO picture? Well, when I was young, uh, and I still have a weathered copy of this book, uh, but my mom and dad used to give me a lot of interesting books to read. I think it started with, you know, science books, but uh, they, of course, tried to give me things that that I found interesting to read. Yeah. And it starts with, you know, Mike, Mary and Jeff and things like that. But about the time I am, you know, in first and, and second grade, it becomes pretty evident that I'm really interested in science, animals, things like that. And then they also gave me some books uh, at my request on Sasquatch. You know, I, I early on was really interested in that because the idea of there being an undiscovered animal species in North America or any place, that was just an interesting idea. But um, I certainly had begun to look at books about UFOs and some of those early ones that I recall reading, you know, these were in the school library. Um, those had probably been books written by um, Daniel Cohen, for instance. He was an author who actually had been a skeptic and a member of a popular American skeptic organization, but he wrote uh, books on, on an unusual phenomena uh, for young readers. And I'd read a lot of those that were geared toward the ancient astronauts idea and UFOs and things. And so keeping in mind that he maybe offered a slightly more balanced approach being a skeptic, even yeah. though that wasn't always evident in what he wrote. But uh, I wrote my first report for school in third grade about UFOs. And I remember my teacher getting me up in front of the class and saying, you know, the report was well written, but, you know, we're taking off points because of the credibility factor. You know, the topic you picked is not a credible topic in science. You know, I need to tell you, young man, that scientists say there is no hard evidence for these things, none whatsoever. Well, my interest persisted despite the the reduction of my grade and uh, and basically there was a parent teacher conference and my uh, teacher who, again, I, I understand where she was coming from. She was scientifically minded. She was trying to intervene in this young man's life and make sure that she, that she could early on, if possible, steer him in a more scientific you know, direction. I appreciate that. 
but she met with my parents and, and had basically said, look, uh, you know, I'm a little concerned about some of the books your son's reading. And my mom and dad said, there's the key word reading. He's reading, isn't he? And therefore, I think we're done here. <laughs> and I'm glad mom and dad had that attitude because I'm still reading these books. But I do try to temper it with a science mindset as my third grade teacher, Mrs. Hall, always tried to drive home. <laughs> That's how I got I bet, into it. A little bit different now in the science world. If you did it in schools now, they'd probably be more open to it. They'd probably grade you up a bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, what's funny is I still have that report and I still have my like daily journals where my my teacher would write in the margins. OK, Micah, but let's stick with things that science can prove. But then my teacher assistant, she would write me little notes like this. Did you see that show, by the way, Unsolved Mysteries the other night? I think these things are out there. And it was fascinating to see how my teacher was very dismissive. The assistant teacher was privately saying, listen, here's a tip. Go check this out. Nothing has changed. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in my late 30s now, and I still receive those kinds of tips from people. Michael, what do you think about this? Check this out. That began for me in third grade with my teacher assistant going around behind my teacher's back and making sure that she let me know she was interested in this topic. And I think a lot of people are, too, and remain so to this day. I think that's what shot me, right? I've got um, two twin sisters, one who's um, a vicar, the other one, and none of them... Um, Sorry, it's on my wife's phone. She'll turn off. None of them think they don't really believe in, you know, UFOs and stuff. Um, but obviously during, you know, the COVID lockdown, they started getting it within Twitter, and obviously we had the UFO Twitter hashtag appear. And one of my sisters then contacted me and said, "Have you watched the new Unsolved Mysteries?" And I was like, "No, I didn't know, even know there was a new one out." And she goes, "Yeah." There's one on a UFO, which I found really interesting about some school kids seeing it. And it's the fact they'd actually watched it, you know, and sat there and what viewed it. I thought, oh, wow, you know, she's opening her eyes a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, we have to recognize television has brought this topic, you know, a lot of attention from the public. Now, that's been helpful at times. And, you know, at times maybe it's it's been a little less helpful. I mean, if we go back to the original Unsolved Mysteries, you know, they revamped it like you're talking about. And I watched the episode of the new series that you described, which was interesting. But again, for the longest time, this the case that was considered the smoking gun of ufology was Roswell. Yeah. And although there had been books written about Roswell and a lot of researchers who were, you know, doing a lot of work on that, it had really been Unsolved Mysteries that put that case on the map with that, you know, that um retelling of the story and the dramatization of, you know, guys like Glenn uh, Dennis going to the actual Roswell Army Airfield Hospital and talking with the, the nurse. And again, on further reflection, there have been a lot of questions raised about those narratives uh, as they were portrayed on that television series. But don't think for a moment that TV doesn't play an incredible role in bringing, uh, you know, public attention to the UFO issue. And that, you know, that still remains true today, although I think that with the World Wide Web, and more people having access to it and virtually everybody's pocket with their smartphones like we have today, you know, Twitter and social media maybe have done even more than television did back in the early nineties to keep people interested and engaged in the UFO topic. I agree with that. It's like, I get a lot of friends who text me saying now, you know, I was seeing this in Sky and all right, it's only most of the fact a good 90% Michael, it's the ISS, you know, flying over and nobody knows about it. And nobody knows what it is. So then you sort of explain to them, well, no, it's the ISS, this is the international space. And they're like, can you see it from here? And they're like almost shocked that you can see it flying over your house, uh, you know, 11 o'clock in the evening. 
and it's it's just that sort of that's done as a favour because it gets people sort of questioning and looking at the sky as well, which I think is really good. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And in fact, the first time I saw the ISS fly over my house, I was mystified because I saw this bright light. It wasn't making any noise, although I perceived that perhaps it was because there'd obviously been a distant aircraft somewhere. And I heard what was aircraft engine noise, but I was looking at what was clearly the International Space Station. And I thought, that's unlike any kind of plane I've ever seen. That's got to be some sort of special project, maybe a UFO. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's what we. That's what most of my mates will phone up. And say, Marcus, at eleven o'clock, I was walking my dog in the field, and you know, I seen this light go over, and I said, was Was it straight? And they were like, Yeah, yeah, clear as a day, no noise. And said, Yeah, it's the ISS, and were, it's almost now that they let down that it's the International Space Center, and they're like, Oh right, thanks for that. <laughs> oh yeah, well you know, and, and there've been instances since then because of course I was I had the benefit of having a friend who actually works with the space program and I, I reported it to him. I said, you know, I saw something interesting last night, and he said, Oh yeah, yeah, where you are in Asheville, North Carolina, the ISS would have been going right over you and would have been clearly visible at that time. I'm sure that's what you saw, and I too was convinced. But you know, in in years thereafter, I've done you know star watching parties and things. I've even had teachers, you know, like elementary school teachers and people who will join us, and I'll say. Now, we may be able to see the International Space Station. There's Jupiter. There's Saturn. And I remember a teacher giggling one time. And, and I said to her, I said, what, what's so funny? What are you laughing at there? Uh, and she thought it was the most the, the, the most hilarious idea that we would be able to see the International Space Station from ground here on Earth. And I'm like, no, I mean, very clearly you'll be able to see it if it passes over. Yeah. And I'm amazed at how many people are unaware how visible it actually is. So do you think – do you think the reports and everything that they're going to look into now with your gut, do you think that'll help us out in any sort of way, Mike? Well, it remains to be seen, but as I had pointed out earlier with some of the uh, developments that we're seeing right now here in the United States, I know a lot of people are uh, concerned about transparency. And, uh, you know, for a recent article I did there at the debrief.org, uh, I reached out to Lou Elizondo who, having worked in government himself, and according to the resignation letter that he sent when he actually left government, he somewhat you know, resigned in protest over what he thought was a lack of effort on part of the military to look at this. When I saw Lou Elizondo on Twitter essentially sounding alarms and saying, you know, this is this may have superficially the appearance of being good for UAP research, but this is not going to be helpful. There's no, not going to be any oversight. You know, this isn't going to be actionable based on where it is appearing and from what branch of government it is it is being or what uh, division of government it is being operated out of. And, you know, what he's saying is the best thing that could possibly happen is that the Senate actually follows through and passes this legislation, the so-called Gillibrand Amendment, and that we have a more comprehensive UAP investigative body within the DOD and that further we'll – that we will have the assurance that Congress will be kept up to speed on this and also that the American people will be. So, you know, again, as to whether what we currently have, and to be clear, there is already the currently established, this was announced on November 23rd, so it's very recent, but the Airborne Office, or I'm sorry, Airborne Object Identification Management and Synchronization Group, I think the number one question everybody has is, where did they come up with that name? Try saying that three times fast, it's almost <laughs> unpronounceable, certainly not memorable. I think in truth, that was kind of the idea. I think that was part of the point was to have this very you know, ambiguous sounding name that would be less than memorable for people. Yeah. And 
And that that in itself really says a lot about the level of transparency. If the government doesn't seem to want us to be able to pronounce the name of the op, of the program that's supposed to be looking at these things, and they have explicitly stated in the release on the 23rd that they are limiting it to military airspace where they'll be act, you know, actively looking for these things. I mean, do we really – can we really expect that the public will be kept in the loop, let alone that Congress will be informed about all developments moving forward? Now, I reached out to the Pentagon for a statement about this, and Pentagon spokeswoman – uh, Susan Goff got back with me and said, you know, we do endeavor to make both unclassified and classified data available to Congress. Transparency will be a a key feature of this. But that is what we're being told. I would much rather see the assurance of that through legislation, not the Pentagon telling the public after a arbitrary appointment of an office with no legislative action to take place, you know, beforehand. That that's problematic to me, Marcus. Yeah, because I think. For us now in Britain, um, I know Louis came over, you know, and did like a TV sort of panel show here in the last couple of weeks. Um, with is it QCRC GQ GQ? Yeah, I, believe. yeah. And I think that's done us a bit of a favour because up until then, um, our newspapers were cer- certainly still reporting, as I say, you know, like in in sort of the rubbishy papers that everybody just reads on, you know, like a Friday night when they're on the way home on the train, which just have a joke about a little greeny alien eating a pizza. And how somebody <laughs> claims, you know, well, we saw an alien in, in, in Starbucks, you know, having a cup of coffee and they don't take it serious. Where now it's slowly sort of coming into play here. You know, they're, they're starting to wake up a bit, evidently, when they're doing the interview with the likes of Lewis. Yeah. I have to say that, you know, Lou has really not only championed the cause, but I mean, he's traveled around the world. He's been in, I think he had been in Portugal recently. I know he'd spent some time in Italy, uh, naturally having gone to the UK. Uh, our colleague, Ryan Sprague, was actually there and met with him briefly while he was in uh, England. And I really appreciate Lou trying to, I mean, taking a citizen of the world approach and traveling around the globe to try and raise awareness about this issue everywhere that he goes. I mean, it's it's very admirable. And again, I would say, despite there being a rather tumultuous uh, period since him leaving government, coming out publicly and talking about some of this, you know, having been reported in the New York Times – uh, having had challenges made, you know, again, from no less than actually spokespeople at the Pentagon who said he never had any kind of authority with the ATIP program. I think some of the confusion there may have been cleared up in recent days following the publication of this book co-authored by James Lekatsky, uh, veteran reporter George Knapp and Colm Kelleher, microbiologist who had actually worked for Bigelow Advanced Aerospace Studies or Airspace Studies. And um, long story short, you know, there had been a program called ALSAP. That was the program that ran out of the DIA, uh, which is a combat support agency of the DOD. The the $22 million reported in the New York Times went to that program, but it had an unclassified nickname, which was ATIP. And I think that when the Pentagon has said Lou Elizondo had no you know, oversight or authority, any responsibilities with ATIP, what they are essentially saying while covering their back, you know, is, is you know, he didn't have authority with that program, OSAP, uh, but he certainly did run an informal initiative within the Pentagon that looked at aerospace threats. And the nickname that they had for that, incidentally, was, guess what, ATIP, same thing as what the unclassified nickname for OSAP had been. So I think that reconciles the question. It's a little confusing, 
But again, after all the questions over, is he who he says he is? Based on everything I've seen and having spoken some with Lou myself, I think he is who he says he is. And I do applaud his efforts to continue outside of government now in the civilian sector to try and raise awareness about this issue. Because, uh, I mean, it seems over here we, we sort of get the feeling that Bigelow is quite a big player in everything. You know, when we hear the reports coming out of America, it's like keep an eye on what he's up to just to see what he's sort of going to bring out with Jeremy Corbell and, and Graham Knapp, you know, sort of thing. Certainly. Uh, you know, I think that Bigelow obviously has done a lot of good work. I know that George Knapp and others really applaud his efforts. And so do I. But I also have a problem with with a group or with an entity. And in this in this case, you know, Bigelow Aerospace or Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies essentially contracting, you know, being I think they were the sole contractor who was awarded the contract for the ALSAP program and then conducting this research. And and we've been given the assurance by Colin Kelleher and James Lukatsky, who have done very few interviews in recent days. But I think last week, Colin Kelleher did one on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, a longtime friend of mine. Yeah. And, and Colin Kelleher said, look, you know, no, you're probably never going to see any of this information. At the direction of Jacques Vallée, again, another champion of UFO research over the years and one of my favorite researchers and writers on that topic of many decades. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Vallée's work, but yeah. – Ballet had also helped to assemble what they have described was the largest database on UAP ever created. Are we ever going to have access to that? Well, Kelleher says no. And so here again, it comes back to the question of transparency. Why should only a few individuals have the right to this information, whether that's in government or in a private you know, in, uh, industry or, or agency or whatever, you know, that has or a, a maybe a private group that has actually done work as a contractor for a government agency. Again, my problem at the end of the day comes down to if this is seriously what some people think it is, which may be proof of that great question, are we alone in the universe? We don't know if that's what it is, but if it is, do we have a right to know? I think we do. And it troubles yeah. me with anybody, government, business, you know, whatever, if they're keeping that information all to themselves. See, I think at the moment, I've got this great big theory that at the moment this would probably be the best opportunity in life to actually tell mankind that something's going on because we've had everything thrown at us. I don't think we're we're in the day of the age of you know War of the Worlds when they did that radio broadcast and everybody went wild. And I think more people are more now open because they've sort of experienced it themselves most of the time and they thought, well, yeah, we know it's there. You just lied to us for a couple of years. Yeah, more than a couple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess the weird thing is, because I always have the argument with my sister, is it changes. If, if if it wasn't from our sort of earth, it changes the whole sort of perimeter. Like I always say, well, it changes the Bible. It changes, changes Christianity and what's been scripted for years because your Bible or people's Bible say we're the only people who are around, you know, and would be stupid to think that there's anybody else. And I, I wonder sometimes, do they just keep you keep it away from you because you'd have to change completely everything that was written many years ago. Yeah. Well, you know, again, one has to ask themselves coming back to the story from earlier of this, you know, obvious, what appears to be a structured craft with a guy getting into it from 1966 that John Keel and many others have written about over the years. And, and the observer in that case, you know, I'll point out, he was able to see numbers like, and letters like T10 something 
written across the side of this aircraft. I mean, it very much would strain credulity to think that aliens are going to come here and that they happen to use the same sort of alphabet and same numerical system that we use here on Earth, let alone one so similar to English that a you know American citizen driving along in the early morning hours can see it and read them and recognize them. I mean, that doesn't make any sense unless right. some of this stuff is our own. But if that's the case, the other question then is, well, why did we have to have $22 million appropriated for a DIA contract so that OSAP could study these things. If they're ours, why would we be studying it? I mean, the very fact that there has been an independent study carried out for, you know, the DIA, I mean, that that to me clearly shows that some of these things we don't recognize. We don't know what they are. And that much was expressed by the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, here in the United States at a recent event in Washington at the National Cathedral where she was talking about this and more specifically the report she delivered to Congress back in June in a unclassified version that was later uploaded to the uh, DNI website. But again, the, uh, the, the big takeaway she said was that we obviously don't know what some of these things are and that we should be open to the possibility that some answers to what these unknowns are may come as she termed it extraterrestrially. So that doesn't prove that aliens are visiting earth, but I would dare say if all these things were just our own technologies, it doesn't make much sense why we'd spend millions of dollars sending people out to Skinwalker Ranch to try and figure it out. Well, I was just going to mention that. That's This is what makes me head scratch all the time, Mike. My friend, he started off watching you know, the, the new program of the Skinwalker Ranch with the new owner. I can never remember his name. Brennan, um, yeah, Brennan so, Fugel. Yeah where he's got all the crew now, hasn't he, doing the research, and he's like, and my mate's like, you've got to watch this, and I've watched a couple of series, and it's it's good viewing, but then I said to him, well, Bigelow was on that, was on that ranch for a couple of years, surely Bigelow found half of this stuff that he claimed, that, you know, Brand, Brandon suddenly decided it has turned up, surely a man who's putting his time into proper research would have found everything already if you know what i mean so it leaves me scratching my head thinking he must have found that before the, the team came on and they've just like you know they've got good viewing from it and it really disturbs me in, in some forms of way watching it <laughs> well yeah and again this is where we have to be very careful coming back to what we said about unsolved mysteries does it bring a lot of attention to the subject yes is all of that attention necessarily meaningful or worthwhile in the furtherance of our scientific understanding of whatever these phenomena may be? Not necessarily. And that's important to remember. And that's not exclusive to UFOs, by the way. Again, I, I referenced in other uh, conversations I've had about this, a uh, talk I had with Kara Cooney, who is a Egyptologist. And yes, she's been on television. And as a result of some of her experience on television, she has told me I'm always a little wary of science made for TV. Because, you know, when you have Television, you know, hiring scientists to be consultants or to be, you know, stars on a TV show, and they are claiming that the, you know, the discoveries are being made right there in the field as the cameras are rolling. This is fascinating, ladies and gentlemen. As it happens, you hear it here first. That's usually not true. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the discoveries aren't made in the field these days. I'd say a lot of the scientific discoveries occur in the lab or even in the museums. Not to say that you can't go into the field and do research, nor that you shouldn't. I mean, that's, of course, where, to me, science begins. But, again, the fact that an Egyptologist expresses her concerns about science made for television, I mean, that really points to me 
why we should be very wary of television shows with all due respect to, you know, anyone who's involved with the Skinwalker show. I'm as interested in that topic as anybody else. But again, there's a big difference between actual science being done and what happens when the cameras are rolling. And we need to remember that one of those involves entertainment. The other of those may involve actual advancement of our knowledge of the mysteries of the world around us. Because yeah, I, I actually found, um, I, w I always follow these pages, you know, on Facebook, Michael, and sometimes it's the little things, you know, where people have watched the program and said, well, what, what's going on in the background there that they never picked up is, you know, and you sort of think, hmm, you know, did, did, did they know that was going on in the background while they're filming and smiling and saying there's a cow the other side of the field, you know, and if I, that's the sort of side to me, I always think, is that what they're missing? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Now, you know, I'll point out something else interesting that uh, James Lekatsky had said recently during an interview he did with George Knapp that appeared on the uh, late night radio program Coast to Coast here in the United States. He'd essentially said, look, you know, the, the offset program was 100 percent successful, he said. And one of the listeners who also listens to my program, the Micah Hanks program, uh, had written to me and said, you know, what in the world did Lekatsky mean by that? I mean, one would have to imagine that if they were entirely successful and that the focus of the program had been to study UAP, that they had succeeded in determining what these phenomena were or gathering information about them. So yet again, to your point, if what we're seeing on the TV show involves all this ongoing ex, you know, uh, investigation to try and determine what was happening, but Lekatsky said that, well, you know, during our time there and during the broader operations of the OSAP program, we were 100% successful. What does that mean? What do they know? What did they learn? What did they yeah. conclude? I'd like to know. I don't guess we'll ever find out, though. Because <laughs> the story you get from most of the thing is, well, nothing really happened. That's why I moved on, isn't it? That's what, what you hear most of the times from the Skinwalker Ranch. And, and suddenly, you know, the, the other guy bought it and then it, it was a TV show about it. And you thought, well, and then there was another, um, I believe there's another ranch somewhere in America where he believes... Um, he's got more weirdness going on than Skinwalker Ranch and he's sort of challenging him to go there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would be nice to think that we could somehow find a area, either through magic or science or whatever else, where for whatever reason there's a preponderance of UAP phenomena happening all the time and therefore we have this sort of natural laboratory where we can conduct experiments. But frankly, I find that idea pretty dubious. I'm actually uh, pretty concerned about some of the more extravagant claims coming out of Skimwalker Ranch. And that's one reason, you know, my listeners will note that, you know, I don't talk very much about that topic. A lot of people just are sort of fixated with Skimwalker yeah. Ranch. A lot of the claims, a lot of the stories just, I mean, they strain credulity to me. And in my opinion, if UFO were, if, if UAP issue were so simple that we could narrow it down to a very geographically constrained environment and study this phenomena there, we would have long ago determined what this was all about, or at least would have acquired more information about it and had a better idea. But the fact that we're still all asking these questions tells me that probably, as you said, there's a lot less to be found at Skinwalker Ranch. And I don't think that the UAP issue, as broad as it appears to be, can be so narrowly geographically confined. I think we have to really open up the study to a much broader area. And again, this coming back to the AOI-MSG that the DOD has just established, they're saying we're going to be looking at what's happening in military airspace. Meanwhile, many advocates within government and elsewhere are saying, well, but, you know, these things aren't just seen in military airspace. They're seen by civilian pilots. They're seen entering and coming out of the oceans. 
you know, some astronauts claim that they've observed things that they can't see and that happening outside of Earth's, you know, atmosphere. So really, maybe we should expand where we're looking and not just so narrowly restrict the, the you know, the, the places that we're willing to look for this because it seems to be a much more broad phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. So I guess for my final questions to let you get off tonight, what's next for Micah Hanks? What are you up to? Oh, gosh, there's always something going on. You know, I've got a couple of manuscripts I'm trying to work on. But I mean, these days I've got so many irons in the fire. There's very little time for that. Um, But above all else, of course, you know, I'm continuing to produce podcasts and I am continuing to write. And as always, to try to, uh, in my own way and as often as I can in interviews like this, raise awareness about these issues, get people thinking about it, get people talking about it and to try and encourage them to you know, look at credible sources for information about this. And that's one reason why uh, my co-founders, Tim McMillan, MJ Benias, and I uh, launched thedebrief.org, which is not a UFO site. It is a science and technology site where we report on a wide array of different things. But UAP is one thing that we touch on. And of course, on my podcasts, I do the same thing. The Micah Hanks program every week picks a topic and we we go deep. And I try to really provide as much information as possible. So those projects are all keeping me pretty busy, but, you know, I shall continue and hopefully with any luck, maybe get a couple of books out sometime in the next year or so. <laughs> so um, if people want to find you, Mike, where did they find you on certain podcasts and things? What do you come under? Let us know so they can go over there and have a listen. Certainly. I mean, the easiest way to find everything I'm involved with, just head over to M-I-C-A-H-H-A-N-K-S.com. That's MicahHanks.com. Uh, my website has links to all my podcasts that I produce. There are actually four of them. And, of course, there are links to the debrief, uh, my blog, other articles I've published, books, things like that. So just head to MicahHanks.com. Everything you'll need is right there. Brilliant. Okay, I'll start this and
So the track you just heard, uh, The Great Pink Turns Blue, with their album Tainted, they're a post-punk band, and that was recommended for the album of the year by Greg Peters. Next up is my album of the year number three, which has to be The Great Mighty Inhaler with Cheer Up Baby.
next album of the year is picked by my wife Amanda Mays, who's chose the great London Grammar, and she absolutely adores this song. This is Lord, it's a feeling. Sit back and enjoy. It was taken from California Soul, which was released this year, and did very nearly get into my top five.
to find you like no one else Where the rest of us have nothing left She will be yours Where the rest of us have nothing left She So this next album is album number two of my albums of the year. This is Flying Dream One by Elbow with a great song, Come On Blue. It's a beautiful album, well worked, and it's nice to have them back. Dust to dust, trust and wonder glowing in your marrow. I picture your growing bones, you know, and I dread and love tomorrow. Just with chili air 
So next up is one band probably to look out for next year and that's Daniel Land. This is a new song taken from either his EP or his album when he finally releases it. It's called Summer House by the Sea and it's a gorgeous song. Be the 
Greetings, Truth Seekers. This is Ryan Sprague, host of the Somewhere in the Skies podcast and co-host for the television series Mysteries Decoded. And you are listening to Frequency Dip with Marcus Mays on Radio D-Side. So that was the third track you heard from Pearl Diving by Robin Guthrie and it's a great EP if you want to get it. It's available on Bandcamp and all download sites. Former member of uh, Cocteau Twins. We hope to get him on one day for a bit of a chit chat. Still working on it. Mm-hmm. 
So that was Revive with Resplendor. I hope to hear a hell of a lot more from them next year. They're a great band. Link with Robin Guthries, he's produced the album, and I believe Simon Scott as well has been mixing some of the tracks from Slow Dive. So really, really looking forward to that. So next up is the track album of the year. Has to be smashed. It was a great album. Sadly, Jimmy's not been too great at the moment. Hope he can get himself back on his ground. This is the Doves and this is Carousel.
So as you've guessed, this is the end of the show. Thanks for tuning into Frequency Dip and supporting us this year. We're looking forward to next year. Next week's shows, we'll have a couple more predictions of the albums of last year and some new, hopefully great songs that are coming out for next year. So tune in. We'll have some great interviews coming up. We're hoping to have Ryan Sprigg and Paul Sinclair coming up quite soon. Also, there's a couple of catch-ups with Terry Lovelace, hopefully. And we hope to get Travis Walton on at some point also. So I guess now it's just to say thanks to all the artists, all the interviewees, all the people like Shauna and Brett who've put me in this position of being able to do a radio show. Also everybody at D-Side Radio for giving me the support and help on getting the show up and running. I'm looking forward to next year, so sit back, enjoy yourself. Happy New Year, wherever you are. Even if you're tuned into this show, let me know on Marcus Mays at live.co.uk and we'll give you a shout out, you know. Let's get involved, let's get the show going. But for now, this is my band, Become the Sky, with Carousels, who you will be hearing a lot more hopefully next year. We have a couple of new members and we're up and running and rehearsing. And we're going to be playing two gigs, I believe, in Wales, one Beef Festival in July and also Rock the Castle in Flint. So come along, check us out, get a ticket. We're supporting Space, I believe, in B Festival, so that should be a corker. Anyway, Happy New Year, and I'll see you next year. Check, figure it out when I count to ten.